0: All right, thank you all so much for the wonderful singing this morning. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 17. Numbers, chapter 17. Potentially, you might think this is a strange place to go for a uh, resurrection type sermon. Of course, we're celebrating many know as Easter or the resurrection Sunday. But I believe you'll see in this fantastic story a beautiful picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Numbers chapter 17, and before we go through the chapter, and I do plan to, verse by verse, walk you through it, we're going to have to get a little background in chapter 16 just to kind of set the scene and help you understand the context. And before we do that, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me, please, and let's go to the Lord With a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning. What a tremendous testimony and the great singing we've already had a chance to to be a part of. Thank you for the report from a far country. Uh, We ask you, please keep your hand on those special that special young couple and continue to use them. And Lord, this morning as we gather, Lord, every day we seek to celebrate the fact that you are alive forevermore. We don't want this to be a once in a year obligation. But Lord, now we do have a chance to focus our attention on that wonderful, not just world-changing, but life-changing event. Please make it real to us. Help us today as we open the Scripture. Lord, let it sink deep in our hearts, and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So before we get into chapter 17, just to refresh your memory on what has just taken place. Chapter 16, it is packed with interesting information. Three men, Korah. Dathan, and Abiram, they have attempted to rise up a mutiny against Moses and Aaron as the proper God-ordained leadership of Israel. Along with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they managed to secure the favor of 250 of the most famous men in all of Israel. They were the famous princes, the Bible says. So now this is a rather strong mutiny that's, that's rising up. They bring their story to Moses and they say, how is it that God has only chosen you? We're just as good. We're just as holy. There's no reason that God can't use us as well. Now listen, humanly speaking, we get it, right? One human being, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. God can use the next human being just as much. But the fact remains, God calls certain people to do certain things. And when God makes those choices, it's up to humanity to respect God's choices. Cora, Dathan, and Abiram had a problem with this so Moses said let's pray about it and he called the congregation together he said tomorrow about this time here's what we're going to do these 250 men bring their censers with fire and burn incense before the Lord we will also show up me and Aaron and uh, Korah Dathan and Abiram they'll stand here as well he said if these three men die the a, a natural death like any other man then you know that God hasn't called us but if God does something special, something that's never happened before, if God does it tomorrow, opens the earth up and swallows these men alive, then you know God's called us. Now, that's setting the bar pretty high, right? I mean, when you're asking for, for uh, unique, supernatural evidence. It's not like you can plan that out by yourself. Sure enough, the next day, the Bible says the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. And then... As those 250 famous princes were burning incense there at the altar, the Bible says fire came out from the Lord and burned them up. All that was left was their little bowls that they had the incense and their censers. That was it. And then towards the end of chapter 16, you would like to think that you know how the story ends. After seeing this, all of Israel just watched the earth begin to shake, break open, swallow these men, close up. Fire comes out from the Lord, 250 go down. You would like to think that all Israel says, okay, Moses, Aaron, you're in charge. <laughs> you, you're the ones, no doubt about it. We're on your side now. But that's not how it ended. You can see in, in chapter 16, verse 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron saying, "Ye have killed the people of the Lord. How did Moses make the earth open up? And if he did, shouldn't you tread lightly about rebuking him? <laughs> That's, that can't be Moses and fire coming out from, from the altar area where the Lord's presence was. Really? You think Moses did that? So they're complaining again. Now, as the story continues on, for the sake of time, let's not read it all, but God shows up and he's a little bit upset. He has just given them very rock-solid evidence, and they've ignored it. So God says, all right, if you're you're just not going to listen, then you're invoking the wrath of God, and and a plague begins, and people start dropping dead one after another. Moses turns to Aaron and says, quick, grab a a sense, put some incense in it, run into the tabernacle, make an atonement for the people as quickly as you can. Now, you can picture in your mind how long that might have taken. Moses, as fast as he can, runs, grabs the incense, rushes towards the altar. And as he gets there, you can see in verse number 48, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Verse 49, now they that died in the plague were 14,700. We're talking a matter of minutes, not hours. Minutes. COVID ain't got nothing on this. Right, And I, I don't mean to belittle COVID, I'm just saying in a few minutes, 14,700, they probably weren't wearing masks. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's tremendous. So this leads into chapter 17, and now that you know what has just happened, right, thousands of people have just died, now this makes, it makes more sense of what we're going to read and, and why God did what he did in chapter 17, So let's take a look in verse 1, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods, write thou every man's name upon his rod, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. Thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you, and it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. This is actually point number one on your outline, if you'd like to fill it in. Point one is argument. Argument. I just want you to see in verses one to five, God acknowledges that there is a real argument taking place within the people of Israel who is the rightful God chosen leader of this nation. God has tried to prove it already in chapter 16 but God because he is full of mercy he tries again in chapter 17 he says this time I'm not gonna do it with a once-off event the earth opening the earth closing leaves no evidence for the next generation does it? God is going to seek God is seeking to to give them some evidence that will last beyond this day and even this generation. I just want you to see at the end of verse 5, it says, whereby they murmur against you. God says, Moses, I I know you're in the middle of a mess here, and there's only so much you can do to prove to the people that I've chosen you. If you think about the history of Israel, shouldn't it have been clear by this point? It was Moses spearheading the the push to get out of Egypt, right? He's the one standing up to Pharaoh and calling down the plagues. He's the one that stood before them with the rod and and the Red Sea parted. One event after another should have been enough. How many times has God proven himself to humanity? And yet, because he's God and he's full of mercy and he loves the people, he seeks to give them a sufficient reason to come to him. He wants to cause this argument to stop. Now, this argument, it lasts to this day, doesn't it? Not about the children of Israel necessarily, but about this question, which religion is the right one? Why Christianity? Why not some other religion, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Islam? Why not one of them? You maybe have heard such a statement made before, one religion is just as good as another. There are many ways to get to God, right? There's one God, but many paths, many ways that lead to that one God. And what we're going to find today is God acknowledges that the, the search for the right path to God, it's a legitimate search. It's a real argument amongst humanity, and God involves himself in the argument. The idea that we just say, well, you know, your way is just as good as my way. We'll all just do our best to get to God. From one human being to another, I acknowledge that I cannot enforce my opinions or thoughts on you and say, well, the way I see it, it must be better than the way you see it. If it was just a human argument, we would let it rest right there. But because God has stepped down and gotten involved in the argument, we can't let it rest there. God has shown up and said something about this. You might remember in the book of John, Jesus is on his way To the north, but he has to go through Samaria. He's going from the south to the north, and the middle of Israel was an area known as Samaria. And there, at the the heat of the day, 12 o'clock noon, he sits down on Jacob's well, and he doesn't have anything to drink. He doesn't have a a cup or a bucket to draw the water. So he says to a woman of Samaria, Give me to drink. And a a conversation ensues, and they go back and forth about the living water and how Jesus can offer that to her. She says, I'll I'll take some of that water. He says, call your husband. She says, "Uh, boy, you put your finger on the button there. That's the issue, isn't it? I don't have a husband. Yeah, you said that, sister. You're right about that. Yeah, you've had five, and the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not really your husband. And right there, rather than continue that conversation, the woman says, you must be a preacher. (laughs) Yeah, that's what preachers do, right? And Jesus says, you know, uh, woman, I'm trying to help. She says, uh, since you're a preacher, let me, let me ask you this. You folks, you Jews, say that we ought to worship in Jerusalem at, at Mount Zion. We Samaritans, we say that it's in this mountain. She's near Mount Gerizim at the time. So uh, what do you have to say about that? And you see what the argument is. Which way's right? Which mountain is right? Which altar is right? Which temple should we go to? Which God should we worship? So even in the time of Jesus, he had to get involved in this argument. Here was the answer of Jesus to her objections. He said, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus had not just him being God in the flesh, had his own opinion on it. He had the entire Old Testament backing him, proving that God was going to send salvation to the earth through the Jewish people, not through the Samaritan people. He said, you worship, you know not what. I want you to see this though. There is an answer to this question. It's not something that God has left us in the dark and now we just have to figure it out the best we can. God has stepped down and said, I know there's an argument and I know people would like an answer on this. I'm gonna give you an event, not just a once-off thing that you'll never be able to verify. I'm gonna do it I'm going to leave some evidence, and this will act as assurance for all generations after this. Which brings us to the next part in our chapter. Verses 6 down to 9. This is point 2 on your outline. You can write in assurance. God acknowledges the argument. He has promised to do something about all this religious turmoil that does exist. And now in verses 6 to 9, here comes the evidence that will give us assurance. In verse 6, it says, And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, And every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece. For each prince won according to their fathers' houses, even twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. Now understand historically what they're trying to prove is that Aaron is the rightful high priest. So that's why you see his name prominent in this story. Verse 7, And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. And Moses brought all the rods before the Lord unto all the children of Israel, and they looked, and took every man his rod. Here's the evidence that he gave. He took something dead, and he brought life out of it. Are you starting to see how we we can learn about the resurrection in this? He took something dead. It is physically impossible that this dead piece of wood, this rod, this branch that has been broken off, you cannot have it bloom and bring forth fruit. That is impossible. God says, now, just so that you don't think Moses did it, Moses is going to put the rods in the tabernacle and walk away. The next day, he goes in and fetches them out and shows you that life came from death. I want you to notice a few things about this. It was a rod that they used. Well, a rod is simply a branch that has been broken off of a tree. Can I ask you to hold your Bibles here? I'd like to show you uh, just a handful of verses if it's all right. Can you get the book of Isaiah, please? Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and as you're finding that, I'd like to remind you of a a detail that sometimes gets overlooked when we think about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You You might know that Jesus died on a cross in a place called Calvary, in the Hebrew tongue Golgotha, the place of a skull. And the Bible tells us in the book of John that where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden there. As I understand it, you can go to Israel today and actually walk through this garden. You can see how fruitful it is. It was more like an agricultural center. It wasn't just a small little flower garden for for some tiny. You know, this was a big, massive garden. Almond trees and all sorts of beautiful flowers can be found there. And the Bible says that Jesus died in an area right next to that garden, and when they took him down from the cross, you know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they took him down. They wound him in the the burial clothes and put him in Joseph's tomb, a brand-new tomb nobody had ever laid there, and it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave, a 700-year-old prophecy fulfilled right there in front of them. But he was buried, he died and was buried in a garden. Let me also remind you that he died right about the end of March, beginning of April, right about this time that we're now in. In Israel, this is springtime. This is the time when the flowers would be blooming at their their highest glory. This is the time that the almond would be flourishing, And I don't know if anybody would have put two and two together as they went to the garden to visit the tomb, right, when they were burying Jesus. They probably didn't think to look around. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early Sunday morning and found that he wasn't there, I don't know if any of them checked to see, look at all the life. We're just coming out of winter into spring. Out of the deadness, here's all this life coming forth, and there's the almonds blooming and blossoming, in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 notice this prophecy about the Messiah There shall come forth a what a You're reading a passage about the Lord Jesus Christ and he says there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a what a branch, a branch. Do you see the capital B on the word branch you were talking about Jesus A rod and a branch, obviously we're we're dealing with one and the same thing. You you break that branch off the tree and it dries and hardens. It becomes a rod. He says, I'm going to send a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And Jesus did. The Messiah does come from the line of Jesse. That's David's granddaddy. Now take your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus is referred to as a rod I think that helps us make sense of number 17, the Lord using a rod, bringing some life, bringing life out of something dead. Isaiah 53, let's get verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 53, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says here, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I think we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, yes? Very famous chapter, not just in the book of Isaiah, but in the Bible, Every verse about Jesus Christ. And a couple of questions introduce the chapter. Who has believed our report? So God's going, going to show up and reveal, and reveal something. He's going, going to offer some, some evidence, some truth. truth. The, the question, question is, are you Lord going to believe it? it? The, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. revealed. I'll show you my handiwork. Here it is. But the question again remains, what are you going to do about it? In verse 2, Speaking of the Messiah, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we shall desire him. Here comes Jesus. It says he's growing up a root out of a dry ground. That, that dry, dry ground, ground the is the nation, nation of Israel, is completely, completely dry, not bearing any fruit unto God at all. They hadn't been for four, five, six hundred years completely dead to God. And now from this dry ground, Jesus, a tender plant, starts to grow life out of something dead We see that, now this is not referring necessarily to his death, burial, and resurrection, but you can see how Jesus, with the evidence that he's offering, is out of something completely dead and seemingly useless. Here comes life. Take your Bible further to the New Testament, if you would. Acts chapter 1. So the Messiah himself is a rod growing out of the dry ground. That's just Jesus coming to the earth, but now let's look specifically at His death, burial, and resurrection. In verse number Acts chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up. After that, He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many... And I want you to get the next word, infallible. Do you see that? By many, infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In some of the Bibles, they translate that word infallible as convincing. Friend, there's a big difference between convincing and infallible. Convincing leaves wiggle room for air, right? It, It leaves room for, well, maybe there's something I don't know about it. But when you say infallible That word means you cannot make a mistake. Jesus used infallible proofs when he was showing himself to the disciples after he rose from the dead. Things such as put your finger here where the hole, where the nail went in. Thrust your hand into my side. Give me some food. I'll show you that I can eat it. I'm a real being. Here I am before you. Infallible proofs. This is the type of evidence that God left behind. He knows that there's an argument amongst mankind. Who is the rightful Savior? Whom should we follow? And he shows up and says, I'll I'll show you exactly who to follow. Jesus even mentioned this. If you look at the paper I gave you at the outline, the bottom verse, Matthew 16, verse 4, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them. And departed. They're constantly pressuring him, do a miracle, let us see some great thing. And Jesus did those things, didn't he? What more would you like for him to do? This was actually one of the questions that was, it's like a rumor circulating in Israel at the time. Some people said that this man's mad, he's full of Beelzebub, he's filled with the devil. And then other people in Israel were saying, but wait a minute, when the Messiah shows up, what else do you want him to do? That's a great question let me ask you friend what more do you want God to do to prove to you that Jesus is worth your utmost commitment what more do you want what other miracle can he do people say that all the time well I just want God sh- to show up and do something for me I did this when I was young I, I, now I'm almost embarrassed to admit it but when I was a teenager right 13, 14 I'd do things like this God if you're real just make an ice cream cone appear in my hand all right In my mind, that was the greatest thing he could have done at that particular moment. (laughs) It was hot and I was hungry. But we constantly want more. What's wrong with the evidence he's already provided? How much more sure can we be? What else can he do? What else can he say? He's given us infallible proof. Infallible. Take your Bible a little further. Acts 17 verse 31. This is on your paper, but I'd like for you to see it in your Bibles if that's okay. Acts 17, 31. So when they came to Jesus and said, Please give us a sign, he says, Alright, guys, I've been giving you plenty. You haven't been paying attention, so I'm going to give you one more. And and one only. The sign of the prophet Jonas. Does everybody remember what that sign was? In, the, in another place in Matthew, he explained it. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? So Jesus dies on a Wednesday. Not, not a Friday, he died on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three days and three nights he's in the grave and then early Sunday morning he rises up and he fulfills the prophecy. He says that's the sign. This hardened generation that will not accept all the other evidence I'm giving them, I'll give them one thing that they could not possibly doubt or let's say they could not possibly miss it's, it's infallible. There's no way around it. I'm going to give them life out of death. I'll die and then three days later come back from that. No human help. Nobody there to pull some strings to move the stone. I'll let the enemy guard the stone. I'll let them put soldiers all around. That way you know there's no funny business going on. He says, I'm going to give them proof to end the argument. Infallible proof. Acts 17, verse 31, Paul stands up on Mars Hill. He's preaching to a bunch of educated Athenians. And these people, all they did was sit around every day waiting to hear some new thing. You know what they were talking about? What is the right philosophy to align ourselves with God? That's what they were... And and they even discussed, is there even a God to align ourselves with? That's what these people did. That's all they did. And then Paul got his chance. They said, uh, come here, Paul, we want to hear what this babbler has to say. (laughs) It wasn't a friendly crowd. And he stands up to preach and he explains how God is the creator. He's not a piece of wood or stone. He's not an idol that you can worship in that way. God has made humanity all of one blood, so we all have common ground. And then he concludes the sermon in verse 31 with this. Because he, that is God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given, what? Assurance, Assurance unto how many men? All. All men in that he hath raised him from the dead. We are sure of how death works. We, now here's what I mean by that. We are sure that when you die, that's not the end of you. We're sure about that. We are sure that through Christ, we will physically experience a resurrection. We are sure because of the resurrection, it proves that God is a just God and he rewards people according to their deeds. Now, why do I say that? Jesus was a sinless man, yet he died. That's not fair. So you know what God did to balance things out? He raised him from the dead. He made it right. So that tells me something, that God... He is interested in the affairs of mankind. There's something on the other side of the grave, and God will certainly judge those things at that time and make things right. We learn all of this. We are assured of this because of the resurrection. He has given assurance unto all men. If I can't ask you to come back to Numbers chapter 17, there's an argument, and it's been going on for centuries. God acknowledges that. So he stepped into human history. God manifest in the flesh, he goes to the cross, he's, he dies, he's buried, he rises again, infallible proof given to the people. Paul said it like this, I, I like how Paul worded it, he was standing before Agrippa giving his testimony, and when he explained the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Festus stepped up and said, Paul, much learning doth make thee mad. Said, you're crazy, man. That's crazy talk. Somebody died and came back from the dead. Oh, come on, Paul. You, you, you've gone nuts. Yes, yeah, maul. <laughs> and Paul said, uh, Most noble, most noble Festus, or was it Felix? E- either one. Started with an F. <laughs> most noble governor, I'm not mad. Because he's losing his mind. He's getting all stirred up and, oh, that can't be right. And Paul's very calm. No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not mad. He said, and, and even King Agrippa knows that I'm not mad because everything that I've just explained was not done in a corner. That's a fantastic statement because when you look at the beginnings of all the other religions, they always happen with some guy going off in private and something strange happened, then he comes back and tells us about it. But the events that validate the life, death, resurrection of Christ, not done in a corner. Done so that all people could see it. Number 17, look at verse Look at verse 9. Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel. Do you see that? Public. Moses didn't walk into the tabernacle and walk back out and say, Take my word for it, Aaron's rod budded. How do we know? Uh, Just take my word for it. Why would I lie? Now follow me or die. That's how a lot of religions get started. Take my word for it. Moses said, Don't take my word for it. Here, look, here's the evidence. That was dead, and now life came out of it, just like that. It flourished quickly, which, by the way, that's what the almond was known for. The word almond, the Hebrew behind it, means haste. It means, it means something happens quickly. He said, poomp, it was dead, now it's alive. Let's move on to the last part of the chapter, verse 10 on down. And in number three on your outline, you can fill it in with the word inattentive. Inattentive. They weren't paying attention in verse 10, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. That rod was to remain in that spot. Not just that day of week, not just that generation, but future generations were going to see it. So much so that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that that rod was part of the tabernacle furniture. It was just something you saw in there. You had the, the uh, tables of the Ten Commandments. You had the pot of manna. And then this rod was to be kept. Now, think about this. It bloomed blossoms. Almonds flourish. Now, even on a tree that's alive, if you break off a branch that has the almonds and, and the blooms and stuff, you break that off, it, those things will quickly die. But this matches precisely what Jesus said to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. I am he that was dead and, and alive, and I'm alive forevermore. I didn't rise again so that a few years later I could go back to the grave. I'm alive forevermore. I'm seated at the right hand of God right before the testimony. In the, If you want to find me, come seek me. I'm here. I'm here as a token against the rebels. If anybody ever wants to doubt, what do we do? We walk him to an empty tomb. We say, talk to the tomb. (laughs) What what do you have to say about that empty tomb? There he was buried. He was guarded by the enemy, and now he's not there. How do we explain that? People have been trying to explain that in so many ways for the last 2,000 years. Skeptics have come up with the most fantastic of ideas, the most logical ideas to wear your microphone. Sorry, the most logical idea is to say it's empty because Jesus fulfilled his own prophecy and rose from the dead. That's the, that's the easiest outcome and conclusion to come to. This was meant to be kept there, not just for that generation, but moving forward. It says to be kept for a token against the rebels and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me. Now watch this last part. That they die not. I find that interesting. God is just... 14,700 people died just just recently 250 he sent fire out to burn Korah, Dathan, and Abiram swallowed by the earth and he says "I, I don't want any more people to die the Bible tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked we have no pleasure standing here on a Sunday telling you friend you're a sinner and because you've broken the laws of God you are under his condemnation You will one day face judgment and there will be wrath. There will be a punishment. We get no joy out of that. Thank God the story doesn't stop at the end of chapter 16. Thank God we continue into this chapter where God makes a way for people to come right with Him. Say, listen, if if you need more evidence, after everything I've already done, here's something that you possibly couldn't miss. I'm doing this to prevent dying. I don't want any more people to get it wrong. Verse 11, and Moses did so as the Lord commanded him, so did he. Now, Moses, if if I can connect him to the New Testament in this way, what Moses did in the Old Testament, I think that's what you and I should be doing now. Here's what I mean by that. Moses took the evidence and he put it right where God told him to so that if anybody had a question, years and years later, they could Go point at that. Say, see the rod? That proves this is the right high priest. What should you and I be doing? In the book of Acts, the main focus of each disciple, they went out and told people about the resurrection of Christ. They kept that evidence in public view so that if anybody has a question, why have you devoted your life to serving Christ? It's not just that he died and was buried, although we find great value in that, obviously. But if the story had stopped there, we probably wouldn't be talking about him today. We talk about it because not only did he die and was buried, but he rose again the third day. He's alive forevermore, which proves to us if we want to be alive, born again, we find that through him. him. Not through any other means. Nobody else is going to be able to give us that kind of life. So what did Moses do? He did what he was commanded I'll take that rod and put it there so that all the people can have access to it. You know why I think a lot of people still have this argument, which religion is right, where should we devote our lives? I think because a lot of times Christians fail to do something about the resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. We fail to talk about it. We fail to live as if Jesus is alive. The evidence of him being alive, that should be clearly manifest in our lives every day. When somebody says, why do you do this? Why don't you do that? Because my Savior, he didn't just die 2,000 years ago. He rose again, and he's living right now in me. He's aware. He's he's here. He's watching what I'm doing. He walks with me. He talks with me. Isn't that what we sang today? And, And because of that, people say, man, there's something different about the way this person is. And that's the evidence that they need to say there, there must be something very different about this particular religion. In verse 12, it says, the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, behold, we die, number one. We perish, number two. We all perish, number three. Verse 13, whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die, four. Shall we be consumed with dying, number five. Five being the number of death, they hit the nail on the head right there. So we're die, we're going to die, we're going to die, die, die. They are really, when they ask the question, shall we be consumed with dying? They've already answered the question. They're already consumed with it. They can't get it off their mind. This is what conviction sounds like. You think about this. When the reality sinks in, I have sinned against God and one day I'm going to stand before him and he's going to ask me, Why should I let you come into heaven? Friend, just for a moment, would you think about that question? Think about it. One day, God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to tell him? You say, well, I would tell God that I did the best I could and that I went to church and that I prayed and I even read the Bible and I tithed. Let me give you one more thing to think about there. What about the bad things you've done? Because we've all done them. We've all done them. See, we're all on equal ground here. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to his expectations. Not a one of us. There's not one that doeth good. No, not one, right? That's what the Bible says. There's none righteous. No, not one. So we do not deny that at times you have made an effort to be a good and an upright person. But what about the times you didn't make that effort? What about the times you've broken his laws? What are you going to do about that? You say, well, God's ever merciful. You know, he'll just forgive me. God is merciful and God does want to forgive you. But if that's the way God operates and God will just wink at it and forgive you, well, then nobody's going to be punished, right? And if God's not going to follow through with these laws, if he's not going to offer a legitimate punishment for breaking these laws, why did he give them in the first place? What was the point? It's all just a big joke then. God's not a joke. God's very serious about this. Now now, see, that's why I say this reality needs to sink in. God has a standard and I've fallen short of it. God has a target and I've missed the mark. That's what sin is, missing the mark. And if that's the case, God, because he's holy and righteous and just, he has no choice but to punish me. How does God punish sin? From the very first Page of the Bible, we learn this. The day you eat thereof, ye shall surely what? Die. From the first page in the Bible, we see that the wages of sin is death. Now you see that sinks in because you look back in your life, you go, wait a minute, it's not just once or twice. It's not just dozens. It's hundreds of times that I have willingly, purposely done what is wrong. And one day I'm gonna pay for that. And you look at all your fellow countrymen, 14,700 worth, 250 here, a handful of family. You go, man, they're all dropping dead left and right. Why? They rebelled against God. And then you look at your own life, you go, oh boy, I'm next. Because I've done it too. I'm no better than them. I'm next in line for the wrath of God. I deserve to be punished. You know what then can happen very easily? You get consumed with dying. You go, oh boy, how can I avoid it? How can I get out of this? I'm going to die. I'm going to perish. I'm certainly going to perish. And that's where conviction sets in. And this is why God told Moses, take that rod that is a constant reminder that life is available. That out of this dead thing, you can find life. You can overcome the deadness. Moses, take him to the rod Show them the rod of life, the name of the sermon today. Show them the rod of life. Show them that God has made a way to end the argument, and instead of fighting with God and being in contention and being his enemy, you can be reconciled and made right if you'll just submit to what God has shown you. We can see it, right, at verse 10, that they die not. Their question, they were inattentive. God has just said, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be in rebellion against me. They completely missed it and said, shall we be consumed with dying? No. No, you don't have to be. Friend, if you came this morning with a question mark deep in your soul, am I right with God? Am I saved? Am I one of His children? Am I sure? Right, point two. Do I have assurance that I am born again and I have eternal life? If there's a question mark in your soul on that point, You don't have to go away doubting. You don't have to walk out wondering, is God upset or is He happy? You can finish that conversation. You can stop the argument today. You can go to the evidence that God has seen, God has offered. You can see it for yourself. A few years back, I did a a debate with a certain Muslim. We were debating uh, things about Christ. uh, If he was... God manifest in the flesh if he was divine and I've, I've seen a lot of these debates I've heard a lot of different arguments offered and I offered those arguments but then I offered one that normally I don't hear in a debate I said for you Muslim folks sitting in the crowd do me one favor if you're an honest seeker of truth I'm going to offer you a little challenge if Jesus is God manifest in the flesh if he did actually rise from the dead as the Bible says that he did then you should be able to talk to him. You should be able to ask him, are you God? And if he's God, he'll answer. (laughs) If he's not God, well, then you have your answer. You say, Brother Mike, well, you're you're really asking a lot. A lot of who? A lot of Jesus? He can manage that. (laughs) He can manage that. He's alive forevermore. Now, I don't know. I didn't follow up with them to to find out if they took me up on that challenge to actually ask him, are you there? Did you rise? Are you God? I'm gonna offer the same challenge to you this morning. Say, I got some doubts in my soul. I'm not sure that I'm saved. This whole business about walking and talking with Jesus and having him as a real part of your life, I feel dead inside. I don't feel life in there. Then I'm challenging you because he rose from the dead He's seated at the right hand of God where he ever liveth to make intercession for you. Talk to him. Ask him, Lord, what is it that I'm missing in my life? What do I need to include in my life so that where there was deadness, I can feel that, that life? I want to make, take advantage of the rod of life that you've preserved for me. I don't want to be inattentive to it. I want to do something about it. Let's all stand if you would, please. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I'd like to give you just a couple minutes to examine your your heart this morning. God has given us all the evidence we need. Now it's our responsibility to do something with that evidence. Music is going to play softly. You just take a moment to ask yourself this question. If I died tonight, am I 100% sure that I would be with God in heaven? How do I know that I have eternal life? That's a legitimate question. There was a man in the Bible that asked Jesus that. What must I do to have eternal life? Just like God took time to prove to all of Israel that Aaron was the right high priest, he has taken time to prove to us that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. How did he do it? By allowing his son to die and rise from the dead. After giving the proof, the people said, we die, we perish, we all perish. And God says, I gave my son because I love the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life he's made a way so that you won't be consumed with dying you won't walk around worried what's going to happen to me after I die he'll take away that fear of death and replace it with a a joy for life before we go today I'm going to In just a moment, pray, and we'll close the service and allow you to enjoy the rest of the day with your friends and family and with the Lord Himself. Can I just ask you quickly? And and please, this is a private thing. That's why we do our heads bowed and eyes closed because I want to give you this opportunity to do it without anybody uh, pressuring you. Are you saved? Are you born again? If you cannot confidently say yes, if you're not sure of that, I would like to pray for you this morning. I'm not going to save you with my prayer. I'd just like to ask God to help you. Take a look at that rod. You know what the answer is. You you know what you need to accept. Just ask God to help you with that. Anybody like that this morning? You can just put your hand up and put it right back down. I won't point you out. just going to pray for you. Anybody willing to say that? Pastor, pray for me. If I died today, I'm not sure where I'd go. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. Anyone else say, Pastor, just pray for me. Not sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. Several hands. Several hands. I appreciate your honesty. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He answered the the argument, which way is the right way to God? He says, there's only one right way and it's through me. He died to pay for your sins. He rose again so he can give you new life. Now here's your offer. He's standing right there at your heart's door, knocking. He wants to come in. All you need to do now is let him in. Say, Lord, I see it. I get the evidence. You've proven to me that you can take something dead and make it into something fruitful. Do that with me. Do that with me. Make me a new creature. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to think about our Savior. Thank you for giving us the proof we need that that he is, is alive, that he intercedes for us, that he is the right way. Thank you for the peace that you give us in our hearts. Thank you for the joy of life. For those several hands that went up, God, would you please, whatever is keeping them from being saved, might that stop today? They walked in worried about death. Might they walk out rejoicing in life? Please, Lord, work in those hearts. Thank you today for the opportunity to focus our attention on the fact that our Savior is alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, folk, thank you so much for your time this morning. Do hope you enjoy the rest of your day. No live stream, no service tonight, but Lord willing, we'll see you next week.